All right. Good morning. Good morning, church. Good morning. Well, Matt is out of town today, so it is my blessing to open up the scriptures and uh, and speak to us today. So thank you for being here this morning. And it is quite cold out this morning, even though it's supposed to be warmer today. I was like, why is it so cold? And then I remembered, oh, it is December. But one of the beautiful things about early December is, well, there's two beautiful things. One, it's we, we've begun Advent. And two... Big Ten basketball season has started. I will let you decide which one of those is perhaps more important. But uh, I, for one, I, I definitely enjoy the start of Big Ten basketball, and especially IU with everything going on here. I, there's just such a culture when we get to this time of year. We've gone through, usually this year being no exception, a rough football season. And we get to this time of year and we think, yes, we are here. It's basketball. Even if the team's no good, which this year we're we're looking a lot better, there's just always this hope. It's not just basketball, right? Anytime you look at a new sports season, you get to that beginning time. You're like, yes, there's there's hope again. Who knows what can happen this year? We'll probably be bad just like always. But, you know, maybe, just maybe this year things will be different. We love that because we long For those new beginnings. Because we know that the world as it is right now is not as it should. And so Advent, Advent is one of those times when we get to long for the new beginning. If you look for the definition of Advent, just kind of the technical dictionary definition, it is the arrival of a notable person or event. And so we as Christians celebrate at this time of year, this season of Advent, as we look forward to the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. So Advent really is the celebration of the ultimate and final new beginning. The ultimate and final new beginning. And it's this season that we're reminded of the beautiful truths of what is true because of Jesus' arrival. So I'm preaching today and I'm preaching again on the 19th. And during that time, we're going to go through Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We're going to look at the birth story of Jesus. And for some reason, whenever we're reading the books in the Bible, we tend to forget that they are indeed books. You think back to maybe English class in high school or college, and when you read a book, usually you're introduced to the main themes and ideas that you'll find in the rest of the book in the first couple chapters, right? But for some reason, we turn off that part of our brains and we start reading the Bible and we just start reading it as if it's a newspaper, especially like the the Gospels, and we're just looking for historical facts. In Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we absolutely have some historical facts, but even more importantly, Matthew is introducing to us some ideas and themes that are going to run through the rest of the book. And they are beautiful themes and ideas, and so we're going to be looking at some of those This week and then again on the 19th. And then today, in particular, we're looking at mercy. Matthew brings up and puts on full display the idea of mercy. Mercy. So we'll be looking at the advent of mercy today. And the way that we're going uh, to be doing this, we're going to look at Joseph. We're going to look at God. And then I want us to look at ourselves. So if you want to follow along, if you need a kind of a structure of where we're going, we're going to look at Joseph, we're going to look at God, and we're going to look at ourselves. 
And I'm glad that we're looking at the idea of mercy because uh, my, my wife can attest to this. One of, one of my favorite things to do is watch YouTube. I probably watch a little too much YouTube. But one of the, the, the kind of my secret joys and pleasures is watching the, uh, the don't celebrate too early kind of videos. You'll have a sporting event, whether it's a race or a football game, and people start celebrating before they cross the finish line, before they get into the end zone. And they're, they're like, yeah, I'm so awesome. And then they get caught or, you know, something terrible happens. I, I just watch those and I love them. I'm like, yes, you got what was coming to you. And so this message today is as much for me as it is for the rest of us. Because we're going to see that mercy is an integral part. It's a defining part of the Christian life. Mercy is absolutely essential to who we are as believers. So we're looking at Joseph, looking at God, and I want us to also look at ourselves. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for what we find here in Matthew chapter 1. Give us ears to hear, ears to hear, and soft hearts that are willing to receive your truth. Help us to examine our own hearts and to see where we fall short and to, to, uh, to openly embrace the grace that you extend to us. And then may we walk in righteousness and obedience to what we find here. We thank you for this, the beautiful truths that we will read today. Give me clarity of speech. Help us all to hear from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One last note uh, before I read. I want to give a, a public thank you to uh, a pastor down in Louisville. His name is uh, Dr. Jonathan Peddington. Uh, he is a Matthew scholar. And his thoughts have greatly shaped my understanding of the book of Matthew. And so even a lot of how I uh, am, am handling this passage is greatly influenced by a lot of his thought and writing. And I, I just want to uh, just let you know right off the bat that, uh, uh, that, that much of what I will share uh, is, is the fruit of, of me sitting under uh, uh, some of, of, of his teaching. Uh, I admire him greatly, and he has just helped me to see things that I would have been quick to overlook, especially in what we're going to see today. We're going to read a story that many of you, especially if you've grown up in the church, and even if you haven't grown up in the church and are just vaguely familiar with Christian ideas, there'll be things in here that you have probably seen and heard before. But some of his, uh, Dr. Pennington's thoughts have helped me kind of, have rattled me in, my, in the way that I've treated this passage before. And specifically, he helped me see, actually, this passage is about mercy, when I thought it was really about something completely different. So anyways, I wanted to thank him for the ways that he's helped shape my thinking. All right, let's dive in. We are going to be in the second half of chapter one. The first half of chapter one is a genealogy, and you may think it's boring, but it's not. I would have loved to dive into it today, but sadly we don't have time. Maybe if I had had three weeks, we could have, could have added that. But no, we're not going to read the genealogy. Uh, but So we're just going to dive in right to verse 18 of chapter 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, Matthew says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh-oh. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I want to pause there. We're going to look at Joseph's life for a while. But we're introduced to these characters. We're introduced to Joseph. We're introduced to Mary. 
And Matthew is dropping us right into the middle of the action and he gives us this conflict. He says this young woman who is betrothed to Joseph is found to be with child. Found to be with child. Now, when we look at this idea of betrothal, we tend to think of the word engagement. And that's not really an apples-to-apples comparison of what's going on here. In this culture, a betrothal was something much more formal. There would have been, it would have been more like a legal contract that had been signed. Joseph would have had this agreement with Mary's father. There would have been things that needed to be done to fulfill this contract. And in many ways, they were considered married. Now, they wouldn't have been together, intimate with one another. They probably wouldn't have even talked much with one another. But in a sense, if they were to be apart, if they were to no longer get married, they'd actually have to go through formal divorce proceedings. So this is very far along in the process. This isn't just a, oh, we're engaged, we've made a promise to each other, we can't wait to get married. No, this is like a legal situation. And Joseph here all of a sudden finds himself betrothed to a young woman who is pregnant. I mean, can you imagine what Joseph in particular is going through? That's where Matthew puts our attention. Mary is actually kind of a background character in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. He focuses a lot on Joseph instead. So that's why I want to start here with asking, how, how was Joseph experiencing this circumstance? Can you imagine the sense of betrayal that he probably felt? Oh, you're the child's from the Holy Spirit, eh? Okay, <laughs> yeah, uh, that sounds a little suspect, right? But here... He's been betrayed. There's a lot of hurt and shame. Embarrassment for both of them. Mary knows the truth. But there's a lot of woundedness in this situation. In this situation. And so Joseph decides to take action. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what does he resolve to do? He's not going to shame her and ostracize her. He could have had Mary stoned. Under the Mosaic law, Mary could have been found guilty of adultery. And Joseph doesn't want to put Mary through that. He shows her mercy. He resolves to divorce her quietly, not putting her through shame and embarrassment. Now that leads us to the question, why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, Matthew tells us it's because he is a just man. It's because he was a just man. The the Greek is a lot more clear on this. I won't give you the technical stuff of how it works. But it's, Matthew's giving us a reason. It's saying, he was this just man, and because he was a just man, it's resulting in this action over here where he shows mercy. And usually we don't put those two ideas together. And I want to unpack this idea of just just a little bit. We're actually going to do it a lot. (laughs) But this idea of just... Uh, the word that is there is actually the word that you will most often see translated as righteous. Righteous. This idea of being right. This idea of being on the side of truth. The idea of being somebody who is fair. 
That is this idea that, that Matthew is presenting. He's saying Joseph was a righteous man. A righteous man. And he extends mercy. You see, we tend to think of righteousness in the courtroom aspect, right? Either innocent or guilty, you've either broken the law or you haven't. And oftentimes, Paul in particular uses righteousness in that way. But that's not actually the way that Matthew uses the word righteousness. They're not at odds with one another, but they're both presenting beautiful pictures of righteousness. And Matthew's picture of righteousness is instead a picture of mercy. It's not checking off a list of things that you do, but it's instead an attitude of mercy. And this runs throughout the book, from chapter 1 to chapter 28. Just for example, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the who? The merciful. Blessed are the merciful in Matthew 5, 7. Uh, Soon after in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 520, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And then what does he do? He then proceeds to provide six examples of this greater righteousness. And all six of those examples have to do with a love of neighbor. A love of neighbor. And the last one, The sixth one is the idea of showing mercy. He says, love your enemies just as God has loved his enemies. So this idea of righteousness immediately in the Sermon on the Mount is is linked with love for enemy. love Love for those who don't deserve it. Extending mercy. Later on, in chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Why? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The very end of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25, we have the final judgment. Jesus gives kind of a little teaching on that. And this is the very end of his teaching. So you can kind of think of it as the summation of everything that Jesus has said up until that point in the book of Matthew. And he's describing the righteous and the wicked. And his biggest descriptor of the righteous are those who extend mercy to others. He gives this list of their behavior and and what they did and kind of what their lives looked like. They fed the hungry. They gave water to the thirsty. They visited those in prison. They clothed the naked. And it's those who are the righteous. All of that is describing mercy. So all of this to say is that Matthew is challenging, I think, a lot of kind of our our modern conceptions of what we would think of as righteousness. Now, Matthew obviously doesn't have you and I in mind, but we need to be challenged by this because we have a tendency to look at righteousness in this this way. I was looking up a couple of uh, Bible dictionaries' definitions of mercy. One of them said, the outward manifestation of pity. That's uh, what Vines says. Another one said compassion, love, sympathy, deep deep caring, forgiveness, giving or receiving care when it isn't deserved. Mercy may withhold or ease expected punishment. Going back to this idea of the outward manifestation of pity, that word pity there is not the sense of, oh, you know, hey, I feel bad for you, son. Like, you know, it'll be okay or, or something like that. It's not that type of pity. 
Instead, the word pity, especially this was like an old English dictionary, is this, it comes from the, uh, the, the Greek word splanknizomai, being moved within oneself, a deep affection for someone. We see this in Matthew 18. We have a, 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 a servant who, is, who owes an unfathomable debt, and the king is moved with compassion and pity. Deep affections within him well up to forgive this servant. And so Matthew is giving us this picture over and over and over again. I came up with my own definition of it based on what I've seen in Matthew. So you can take this or leave this. But this is the Mark Johnson definition of mercy. Mercy is the deliberate decision driven by one's affections. Driven by one's affections to render aid to one in distress or not deliver another person or people over to the just consequences of their actions. I wanted to capture this idea of mercy is active. It's a deliberate decision, but it's also driven by affection. It's not a reluctant, eh, I don't want to do this, but it's saying, I care deeply for you, and so I will extend mercy. I will extend mercy. Now, two notes on mercy. First, mercy requires a problem, right? Requires there to be a problem to exist. A wrong has to be committed or an unfortunate circumstance must be present. And secondly, mercy will always cost the person extending mercy. For Joseph to extend mercy to Mary like he did or planned to do in this circumstance would have cost him greatly in realms of his reputation. Because he's not dragging her into the public square and demanding that she get the just desserts would have cost him greatly. Why, why is Joseph acting the way he is? Mercy costs the one who grants forgiveness. Tim Keller says this, Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. So back to this idea of righteousness and why we're spending so much time talking about mercy. You see, righteousness and our idea of it, this idea of justness that some translations say, we want it to be a list of rules. We really want to have, okay, if I do all these things, then I'm, I'm good, I'm righteous. We think of it as a quality of being right, and it is, it certainly is. Don't hear me saying it's not. It's not being on the side of wrong, that's for sure. But it's not just being on the right side of facts and moral behavior. We can't just be fine with the plight of those around us and being unconcerned with them. We can't just want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. That's not righteousness. I heard one person describe it this way. Mercy runs after the good of others. Mercy runs after the good of others. My father-in-law was a righteous man. I want to share an example from his life. Uh, He passed away almost nine years ago. Shortly before he passed away, uh, well, he was a home builder. That was his his job. He owned a home building company. So he had a lot of subcontractors that worked for him. And shortly before he passed away, uh, there was a subcontractor that stained all of the windows and doors the wrong color uh, for a house. All of the windows and doors then needed to be replaced for this house. It was $30,000. $30,000. 
My father-in-law was dear friends with this subcontractor. They went to church together. And my father-in-law said, my love for this man is more important. It's going to ruin him and it's going to ruin our relationship if I make him pay this. He said, I will eat it myself. I'll just take care of it. He extended mercy to this subcontractor. Why did he do that? There was something deep within him that was different. That was changed. He had been changed by God. He had become a righteous man. Okay, so what, what's my point with all of this of looking at Joseph? It's this. One of the primary attributes of righteousness is mercy. One of the primary attributes of righteousness is mercy. So how do we become merciful? Where does this mercy come from? Is it something we just manufacture? Is it something we just, all right, I'm going to be merciful today. Because if you're anything like me, you sit there and you're like, maybe this doesn't come naturally to me. Like, how can I be merciful? I'm not merciful. It feels like a, feels like a burden that we are placed under. Well, there's hope. Because God can indeed change and does indeed change us. So let's keep going. Let's look at how righteousness is actually merciful because God is merciful. Going on in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The Lord gives this promise, says, I'm sending the Son, and that Son is going to bring salvation. When we think of this word, save from our sins, oftentimes in our modern Western context, we have the idea, again, of a courtroom. And that's not wrong. Certainly it is used that way in Scripture all the time. But Matthew here, in this picture of saving his people from their sins, and especially linking it with the name Jesus, is bringing up the picture of a rescue, of delivering people from one state and bringing them to another. And it's because the name Jesus. See, Matt talks about this all the time. What does Jesus mean? Yeah, Yahweh saves. He brings that up all the time. Jesus, Yeshua, is Joshua. That's what that name is. It's a very common name that existed in Jewish culture. So the angel is saying, you will, name his, you will call this son, basically, Yahweh saves. He will be like Joshua. Yahweh, the formal name for God, his personal name, he delivered his people. He's, when, when, what did Joseph do? He, or, sorry, Joshua do? He brought his people into a new land. They were delivered from slavery and were given freedom with God. They became his people. Whenever God, well, the two times God has created for himself a people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's through deliverance. It's through a rescue from one place to another, out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And so we have here 
that Yahweh is going to save. Not just a legal declaration, but out of slavery, bondage, death, a new way of life. Do you see yourself as someone who needs saving? We have to start there. We have to ask ourselves that question. Am I someone who needs saving? Or do I think, I'm great, I'm okay. I don't really need God's mercy. Because this whole act of saving is an act of mercy. Because we are people who have rejected a holy and good and righteous God. And we have to see ourselves as people that are wicked. As people that have said no to God and yes to ourselves. We fed our selfish desires and cravings instead of surrendering to him. We stand both legally guilty, but also entrenched in death. And God says, I'm going to do something about it. This son, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Not just from the penalty of sins, but he's saving them from their sins. From the life of death that their sin creates. Giving them new life restoration and hope. So let's keep looking at how God is merciful. Why is he doing all of this? Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So why has God done all this? We're given the answer. This all happened to fulfill what the Lord spoke. Now, we look at this word fulfill, and I'm going to challenge some assumptions you may have about this word fulfill. We tend to think of it in a Nostradamus type of way. It's like, here's the prediction, or maybe like an Amazon notification like, hey, your package is on the way, it's going to come, and then it's fulfilled, and it happens because it arrives. And that's not a, a, a wrong understanding of the word fulfill in the way that the gospel writers, and Matthew in particular, uses it. Sometimes it's like that, but it actually has a deeper and more beautiful meaning than that most of the times that Matthew uses it. This is one thing that Dr. Pennington has helped me see. He says that this word fulfill has this meaning of it is like this, or it's analogous to this, or it rhymes like this. Imagine a a symphony even, where you have melodies and, and, and tunes that exist early on, but they reach their culmination later. At the end of the piece, you get the big finale where everything that has come before is presented. And so when we see Matthew writing about fulfillment, he does it five times, like in the first five chapters. We'll see a few more on the 19th. He's saying this musical note that happened in the past, its greatest fulfillment or its greatest picture, all of that before is pointing to what's happening now. It was all setting the stage for what's happening now. And sometimes that includes a predictive element, but sometimes it's more of a a beautiful uh, symphony where it's, yes, this is the picture of what it truly looks like for the principles that were unearthed in that earlier story. I honestly cringe a little bit when I hear 
people give apologetic uh, reasons for believing in Jesus. And they're like, oh, there's these hundreds of, of prophecies and they were all fulfilled in Jesus. And I, I kind of cringe when I hear that. Because some of them don't work that way. You'll even, we'll even see uh, in, 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 uh, on the 19th, there are some that when you go back and read them, they were looking at the past. Like the original author, the prophet, was actually speaking about something that happened before them. And then Matthew picks it up and he's like, this fulfilled what the Lord said. And it's like, wait, what? Okay, but they weren't even making a prediction. Yeah, they weren't. Matthew's not using it in that way. How can Jesus say, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets? He's filling it up. He's saying, yes, this is the fullness of what those things meant. Okay, so... I don't know if that may ruffle a few feathers. If, if you want to talk more about it here more, you're welcome to come talk to me afterwards. But we have this particular quote of, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This comes from Isaiah 7. In that context, Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz, king of Judah. Judah was under attack or was under threat from Syria and Israel. And God then gives a promise that he is going to rescue Judah. And he says the sign that this promise is going to be fulfilled. Will, and so this is very predictive in its initial setting. Is that a, a child will be born as a sign. And that child is then born in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah's wife has a son. And they name the son, get this, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, most of your Bibles will, will say that, Mahashalal Hashbaz, and it has a meaning of the spoil seeds, the prey hastens. I have no idea what that means, but uh, that's, that's what it is. Now, this is one of those prophecies that is also predictive, because obviously that's not the name Emmanuel. But also, Jesus isn't the name Emmanuel, is it? So even in this sense, it can't be a complete 100% like and Amazon promises you a package is going to come and it comes exactly like this. Instead, we have a, a big full picture where there is a predictive element. And I do believe there's a predictive element to Isaiah 7 because in Isaiah 9, we even read it before uh, today. We see that a child, a forerunner to us, a child is given. Uh, he will be called Almighty God, Everlasting uh, Father, Prince of Peace, all of that, uh, those beautiful truths. So I do think there is a very strong predictive element to this. But there's also more. And Matthew is saying, that time when God rescued his people, when Isaiah made this promise to King Ahaz, all of that was pointing to Jesus. And that what God is doing in Jesus is like that. Rescuing his people who are under threat. He's saving them from their sins. It is the fuller and better picture. He's saving his people not just from a geopolitical reality, an army that is coming. He's instead saving them from death. He's giving them life. But this leads us to the question, okay, God's powerful. He wants to save his people. Why can't he just snap his fingers, Thanos style, and save them? God's far more powerful than infinity stones, right? Why does he need to send his son Jesus to do these things? Why do we need Emmanuel? Why do we need God with us? Why does he have to take on flesh? The incarnation is what we call it. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son, takes on flesh. And he does that because of his mercy. But it was important for Jesus to become a man, for God to send a man to die for our sins. Because one, the penalty for our sins demanded the death of a man because we are people. But secondly, and most importantly, for us to have life we would need 
that life to be given to us. Jesus lives the life that we could not live. And it's credited to us. Church father Gregory of Nazianzus says this, what is not assumed is not redeemed. If Jesus did not assume flesh, if he didn't become a a, a person, a, a human being, taking on human nature, then he could not give us the life that we need. So that is why we have the incarnation. And why do we have all of this? Why does God do this? Because he is merciful. He didn't have to do any of this. But the deepest parts of his heart heart, long for us to have restoration. And it's not a reluctant mercy. Uh, In high school, my sophomore year, our football team went defeated. Not undefeated, defeated. Didn't win a single game. Much like IU and Big Ten. Defeated. We were terrible. I don't remember what year this was, but I went to one football game. We were going to our supposed rivals. I don't know if they saw us that as that way, but we went to this game. It was at uh, their, their school against West Charlotte. Uh, only football game I watched. We were losing 63 to nothing at halftime. We, we were that bad. 63 to nothing. So uh, some kind of mercy rule got invoked, and they had a running clock in the second half. I think we ended up losing like 87 to nothing. I honestly don't remember, but it was some ridiculously high score. And that was with a running clock. They still, you know, tacked on a couple touchdowns. And I'm sure not playing their starters at all. We tend to think of mercy like that. This reluctant, man, you're terrible, so here, we'll just, we'll just keep the clock running. And that's not God's mercy. That's not God's mercy. He reaches out to a wretched people, a people who are unmerciful themselves, people who have rejected him, and he decides to save them. You see, mercy seeks the good of others. Like I said earlier, it runs to those in need. It doesn't take vengeance. It doesn't ask for payment. It sees those who need rescue, and it says, I will be there. I will be there. And that's what God did for us. And you may feel like you don't deserve God's mercy. You're ashamed of what you've done. You look at your past. You look at everything in your life and you say, how could God have mercy on me? And that's the whole point. You don't deserve it. But he does have mercy on you. An overwhelming affection for you. Perhaps you feel like you don't need God's mercy. You look at your life and you think, I'm good. I feel fine not a lot of terrible things that have happened. I haven't done a lot of terrible things. Seem to be better than the other guy over there. You do need God's mercy. And again, that's the point. Whether you feel like you don't deserve it or you don't need it, God's mercy stands ready for you. Because we do need it and we don't deserve it. J. Oswald Sanders says, What will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of his mercy. So why does righteousness mean that we are merciful? Why are we putting these together? Why Why am I expanding so much energy on this? It's because righteousness is having character like God himself. Righteousness is having character like God himself. And that character is one of mercy. So, 
God's mercy leads us to having mercy for others. Okay, so we've looked at Joseph, we looked at God, and now let's briefly look at ourselves. We become merciful to others as we experience God's mercy in our own lives. Because if we've been shown mercy, how can we not show mercy? Joseph had a clear understanding of God's character. God's mercy is clear throughout the Old Testament. And Joseph, being a righteous, just, godly man, clearly understood that, had been affected by it. And he behaved accordingly with Mary. I find it no surprise that, he, that God chose Joseph to be the father of Jesus Christ. When you think about your own life, there are plenty of opportunities for you to extend mercy, especially during this season. We have a holiday rush. There's a lot of easy ways to become frustrated with people, whether on the road or at the stores, because there's people everywhere. What does it look like to extend mercy and not demand our own way when you're driving around or when the lines are long or you're kind of at the end of the day and you're frustrated in anger? What does it look like to be patient with the quirks of others and extend mercy to them, even if somebody grates on your nerves because you're like, why do you do that? You're so weird. How can we extend mercy to them and not need them to be a particular way that makes us comfortable? For you students... Uh, you sitting over here, some over here. What does it look like to be merciful to your roommates? You know, you're doing the dishes again when they yet again fail to do their dishes or they've left their crap everywhere. We're not being passive, aggressive, and cold to them when they just don't seem to get you and you're not clicking and you're like, I'm just going to kind of ignore them and try to avoid them. What does it look like to move towards them in love and say, I'm going to be merciful towards you? For those of you who are Spouses in this room, what does it look like to not seek revenge? Perhaps when your spouse leaves things on the stairs that you've put, them, put there for them to... That's an inside joke for those of you who don't know. My wife broke her foot going up the stairs. It was not because I left things on there, but that's the joke that maybe that was why. But what does it look like to not respond with a cutting remark when your spouse frustrates you? Or when they fail to leave up to your, live up to your expectations... What does it look like to not lash out in anger or demand restitution for a spouse that has deeply wounded you or even left? How do we be merciful? For employees, what is, how do you extend mercy to a tyrannical boss? I'm sure none of you who work at Longhorn ever experienced that. <laughs> but what does it look like to, to be treated unfairly or to have someone in authority above us, and extend mercy to them. A lot of us are gathering with family, and you probably have that one family member that you're just kind of dreading talking to. They're going to say something again about your looks or your age, your relationship status, who knows what it is. What does it look like to show interest in their life anyways? Maybe you have an adult child who just doesn't seem to care about you, and you want to unload on them about their apathy and neglect. It's deeply wounding you. And not that you can't have conversations about wanting people to be better. But what does it look like not to attack and instead look to bless and show mercy? For all of us, when you're wronged, when you're slandered, when you're cheated, when you're humiliated by someone, do you respond in anger, wanting them to get what's coming to you? Or do you turn the other cheek and respond in kindness? When we see how God has responded, responded to us, then we can respond in kind. 
Guys, we have the profound ability to think we're righteous because then we lack mercy and that reveals that we have a heart very far from God. True righteousness is merciful and mercy runs towards the good of others. God reached out to us in mercy, sending his only begotten son to save his people from their sins. He took on flesh at his birth and then took on our sin on the cross at his death, all because he had a heart of mercy. He ran toward us. So let's run towards others. Is your righteousness merciful? Let us be merciful, for we have been shown mercy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you are good. Father, I pray that you would change us. Help us to see where we want to think that we are fine. That we are, we are seeing righteousness as just doing good moral things. But may we see that we are unrighteous and we are in need of your love. We are in need of your saving power. We are in need of Jesus' death on the cross. Help us to see, Father. Help us to hear. And Father, we ask that you would change us, that we would be merciful people, that we would not just do acts of mercy, but that we would be merciful people. And not because it's just a good thing or some idea out there, but because you yourself are merciful. Father, I pray that you would change us. Father, will you change me? Help me to respond in mercy and compassion. We thank you that this is the way you are and who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name.